This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Today I'm going to speak about two of Jesus' parables. In fact, they're the shortest parables and they're found in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. They're known as the parable of hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. So I'm going to read them to you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. He found one of great value. He went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So before we look at the parables themselves, I wanted to sort of take a step back, if I may, and consider them first in their context, because I think it really helps to understand what Jesus was trying to teach through them. So to do that, I'm first of all going to think about why Jesus actually taught in parables and then understand who he was speaking to and finally to think about what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven. So first of all, why did he speak in parables? Well, he frequently used them. In fact, there's around 35 parables in the New Testament spoken by Jesus And parables are engaging ways of comparing something familiar, so, for instance, everyday or well-known objects or people or relationships, with something unfamiliar. And, you know, the disciples were really curious about why Jesus spoke in parables too, and he answered them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear, For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So I guess there were people in his audience, Jesus knew, who were prepared and ready to listen 
And so he intended the parable to reveal the truth of God's kingdom to them. But there were also people in his audience who did not wish to hear. Do you ever find yourself, when you're listening to politicians or people that you don't agree with, uh, you're not listening to them with a view to understand. You're listening to them with a view to catch them out or to um, be able to show them how absolutely awfully wrong they are, perhaps even to condemn them. These are the kind of listeners that Jesus is talking about. Those who were indifferent or really didn't want to know or are actively against him and they'd harden their hearts towards him. So Jesus used parables for two reasons, to reveal the truth to those earnestly seeking him while concealing it from those who were too arrogant, lazy, or stubborn to hear it. As Howard says, these stories are revolutionary. They're not meant to be bedtime tales to send us to sleep. Jesus used them in a radical way. They are, they are encounter mechanisms to confront the hearer, to test our hearts. They force us to a choice point. They force us to consider how we're going to respond to him. It's as if he's saying, are you for me or are you against me? Is your heart for me or is it hardened towards me? Are you ready to receive the truth of what I'm saying? Are you ready to embrace that truth? Or are you really not that bothered? Okay, so who was, who was it that Jesus was speaking to here? Well, in chapter 13, Jesus starts the parables about the kingdom of heaven, talking to a crowd on the beach, and there'd, there'd have been a mixed bunch there. But then just before this parable is told... He sends the crowds away, and he goes into a house with his disciples. In other words, his closest friends, those who loved him and knew him and followed him. So these parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, were told to his followers, to people that are seeking him, maybe people like you and me. That's important because this isn't a message for the general crowds. It's a private conversation. Imagine Jesus is here drawing you in. He's got something he wants to say to you today. So why would Jesus be using an encounter mechanism? Why would he be confronting? Why would he bring, be bringing his followers to a choice point? Because he wants to confront us. And he wants to challenge us. He wants to bring us to that choice point today, even as his followers. The parable is set in chapter 13 of Matthew. And throughout the chapter, Jesus is using the whole series to talk about mainly one thing, the kingdom of heaven. It starts with the parable of the sower. Another is the parable of the mustard seed. And they're famous, often-taught parables. And he says, the kingdom of God is like... And in the whole chapter, he teaches people different aspects of the kingdom of heaven. By the way, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is used interchangeably in the Bible. So what exactly is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? Well, first century Jews of Jesus' day had a hope 
and an expectation that someday in the future, the kingdom of God was going to be established and it was going to be a powerful nation where a representative of God, the Messiah, would rule and deliver them from their enemies. A geographical state, a state bound by time. And religious Jews still believe that today. They're still waiting. But Jesus challenged this view. This is the radical bit. He was teaching them that God's kingdom is very different to what they expected. Jesus made it clear that it's through him God's kingdom is established on earth and it's present now and that he is the Messiah. That our enemies aren't physical enemies or people, they're spiritual forces of evil, the devil. That it's not a geographical state, it's a spiritual kingdom that has no boundaries of time and it's eternal. And that when we make a decision to follow Christ, we don't have to wait. God can reign as king in a person's life right here, right now. So I think that understanding this parable in its context helps because it's intended for his followers, for those seeking him, for people like you and me. They are designed to confront and to challenge our understanding of what it means to be a member of God's kingdom, a citizen of heaven. Both parables are really similar, and today I'm going to focus on the parable of the pearl. So let's listen carefully again to what he says. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The merchant in this parable, on finding the pearl, sold everything he had. He sold his car, his house, everything else he holds precious. He's left with nothing, but he has the pearl. So one interpretation of this parable, which is the traditional view, is that we're the merchant, we're the sinner, who when we discover the priceless value of being in God's kingdom, will be willing to give up everything to obtain it and keep it. Mm. So it's as if he's confronting us with the questions, what am I worth to you? What difference am I actually going to make in your life? Do you value me enough to sacrifice all you have to belong to me? So does this mean we have to give up all our money if we want to be a disciple of Christ and everything we have? No, I don't think so. I don't think Jesus has objections to his followers having wealth and material things. But what I do think is that Jesus wants to be first in our lives with nothing or no one above our love for him. Are we prepared to pay the price of putting God first in our lives? Making him the priority? You know, the word priority has its roots in the Latin word prime or first. God is first. God first. 
He's first over everything. But when was the last time we even spent five minutes, five quality minutes, in his presence, listening to what he has to say to us, studying his word? If you're like me, you make great plans to make God the priority in your life. I have great intentions to read my Bible and regularly to honour him with my time, to acknowledge him and give him the glory for everything that I do, to honour him in my relationships, to seek to grow more Christ-like in my motives and heart attitudes. But then real life takes over. I can't get up early enough. I'm too tired. My needs take priority. I've no time to read my Bible. I have a demanding job. I've got to get to work. I've got this deadline. I have to stay late. My job and the demands of others take priority. I can't wait to listen to God because I've got to clean the house. I've got to wash up. I've got to cook. I've got to clean. I've got to hoover. I've got to do the ironing. I've got to mow the lawn. Well, not always the lawn anyway. (laughs) All right, all right. (laughs) My house takes priority. I haven't got money to spare to help others this month. I have to buy that lovely new pair of boots, another pair, um, and my new handbag. My material needs take priority. And I love to have a bit of a gossip occasionally and criticise someone who's upset me or hurt me. It makes me feel better about myself. My self-worth, my self-righteousness takes priority. Prioritising God over everything else is not easy, is it? So forgive me for lowering the tone, but I get my makeup from Boots. And I love it when I go in there, and it's buy two, get one free. Because you buy uh, two, you get one free. And also, I went in yesterday, and I actually got a free gift as well. <laughs> Very exciting. So even if I only need two things, I'm always tempted to buy the third thing because it's free. Sorry, if I want one, I'm always tempted to buy two, so I get the third free, and then I can give it away as a little present or something. I got it free, but it wasn't really free. You don't really get something for nothing in this world, do you? The profit on the extra item I bought probably pays for the free gift, and it ties me into going back. And we often say, don't we, when, when we're speaking to people who don't yet know God, that salvation is a free gift. It costs us nothing. And that's true, it is free to us. It's by God's grace and mercy and generosity. But that doesn't mean it costs the giver nothing. Our salvation costs God his son. He watched his son dying on the cross for us. It's a free gift to us. Salvation is freely offered to us, but it was not free to God. The price tag says zero, but how much is he worth to you? How much do you value what you've been given? Do you value it enough to sacrifice everything you have for it? Sometimes it's too easy to live complacent Christian lives. We take what Jesus has done for us so much for granted. We forget the great cost. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Jew. He was one of the few people who dared to speak out against the Nazi dictatorship in the war and against the extermination of the Jews. He was tried and hung for the stand that he took. But before he died, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a good read, but you probably would only get 10 pages in, and it contains enough conviction to last a lifetime. In the first 10 10 chapters, he compares costly grace with cheap grace. Listen to what he writes. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. There's a popular worship song and the lyrics are, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Jesus' death meant that God could scratch out the price tag of the penalty for our sin, death and permanent separation from him in hell. Instead, he immediately makes us citizens of the kingdom of heaven now and forever. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. How much do you value what you've been given? Wow, that's challenging, isn't it? Yet Jesus is telling us, you and me, his followers, and those that know and love him, that belonging to his kingdom is worth sacrificing everything. So why do we find it so hard to put into practice? Well, maybe it's because we haven't really fully understood something about his character. An aspect of the parables that I mentioned earlier is their ability to confront. And I've already said that the traditional view of this parable is like the merchant is the sinner who's us, searching the world and sacrificing everything when we find the kingdom of God. And that is indeed confrontational to us if we're compromising, if we don't really value what we've been given, if we're taking our position in God's kingdom for granted. But I think there's another interpretation of this parable that confronts us to an even greater degree. Oh, (laughs) whoopee-doo. How about if the merchant isn't us, but God himself? How about if the pearl he looks for and sacrifices everything for is us, you and me, the sinner? You know, this ties up with the theme throughout Scripture. God seeking the sinner, the shepherd who seeks the sheep, the woman who seeks the lost coin, the father seeking the lost son. So, the pearl, the pearl is an object of mystery and excitement. I had first-hand experience of this, um, and particularly the impact that a pearl can have not long ago. At my granddaughter Lily's birthday party, my nephew bought her a really original gift, an oyster. 
And can you imagine her excitement as all the crowd gathered around to see it? Will it have a pearl in it? There were no guarantees. It was a risk. But then the shell was prized open and there, right in the middle, was a beautiful pearl, Lily's pearl. So why a pearl? Why not a diamond or an emerald or another perhaps more expensive gem? Well, there was a Bishop of Gloucester, actually, in the 19th century. He was a renowned theologian, Charles Ellicott. And he commented on this parable. And he notes that in Roman times, the pearl was the most costly and sought-after item of jewellery. There's something so exquisite, isn't there, about beautiful pieces of jewellery. Mike and I went to Birmingham a few years ago and we stopped off at the jewellery quarter to look around and there were rows and rows and rows of jewellery shops and I absolutely love looking at precious gems. There's something captivating about them for me. The colours, the sparkle, I'm often caught, often caught hovering in jewellery shop windows. Not a hint, honest. <laughs> the quality of diamonds and precious stones are graded according to their characteristics, colour, clarity and weight. But do you know that these gems receive a significant amount of their beauty by the way they're cut by human hands? Yet, and here's the interesting thing, the only natural gem that has more value when it's found than when it's finished with by human hands is the pearl. And unlike other gems or precious stones, the pearl is produced by a living organism. For those of you who don't know, the formation of a pearl is actually the result of an injury to the oyster. It's usually some foreign body, such as a grain of sand or a parasite, and it's invaded the oyster's shell. And instead of ejecting it and pushing it out, the foreign object is covered with layer upon layer of a substance that's secreted by the oyster's body, and that's called nacre. And it just carries on covering and covering and covering this irritant until it eventually ends up as an object of beauty and value. There's so many parallels here, aren't there? We can think of ex the experience of the oyster on a, sim on a spiritual level. We're the irritant in God's creation. Yes. Sounds harsh, but we are. Because of our sinful nature. But because he loves us, he covers us, he covers us, he covers us over and over and over again with Christ's love. And gradually we become a thing of beauty clothed with the righteousness of him who bore our lives with his blood. The oyster just appears to be another barnacle-covered shell of little value. We can't tell someone's worth, can we, by looking at them. But the Lord sees within. He can look at our hearts and he sees the worth that lies within. Unlike the diamond, whose beauty only becomes apparent after man works on it, the pearl is of great value, just as it is. And do you know, you cannot 
You cannot do anything just like what was spoken about earlier. There is absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable to God or indeed less acceptable. The only person is Christ himself that can do that for you. It's him who covers our sin. Only he makes you right with God. Do you know, faith is not the result of striving. It's the result of surrender. With God as the merchant in this story, we can see we're not someone that he just happens to have stumbled across. He's been searching. He's been searching for you. And when he found you, he looked at you and saw how precious and how valuable you are. So precious that he sacrificed everything he had so that you could belong to him. Philippians 3, 7 to 9 just sums up the whole thing, really. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So, in summary, these two interpretations could seem paradoxical, couldn't they? In fact, you could say the whole of the New Testament is this paradox. The traditional interpretation demands that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is of such great value to us that we should be motivated to sacrifice everything to gain it. But I think it's the second interpretation that makes such a radical response possible. It's only when we truly understand just how much God loves us, the effort he went to, to search for us and to seek us out, the great sacrifice his son Jesus paid for us, freely giving his own life. Only then, when we value all that he's done for us, can we fully surrender and respond in joyful abandonment. An abandonment that caused missionary Jim Elliot, who was to be martyred for his faith, to say he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'll say it again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. An abandonment that causes a well-off middle-aged couple on holiday in India, so moved by the plight of young girls being sold into prostitution, they sold up their business and they set up a school and a home to care for them. But, you know, it doesn't have to be so dramatic. It could be an abandonment that causes us to prioritise spending time with God above watching our favourite TV programme or playing games or social media. You are a rare gem in his sight.
You're a precious natural pearl. There's no need to get a makeover. No matter what you've done or not done, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter how rejected or ugly or isolated or ashamed, everyone who calls the Lord Jesus their Lord is covered in Jesus' nacre, his righteousness, and this makes you beautiful in God's sight. Do you know, God isn't just interested in what you do or don't do, as important as it is. No, he's firstly interested in a relationship with you because you're so precious to him. And it's only when you know that will you be free to surrender all. So maybe Jesus is confronting you today. Maybe he's bringing you to a choice point. To those of us who know him and love him and maybe already have a deep sense of assurance of how much he loves you, I believe that maybe the first interpretation is more relevant to you today. And maybe the challenge for you is, so what now am I worth to you? Am I still first in your life? Do I still take priority? And for those of us who maybe struggle with that, because perhaps we haven't really fully understood his character, his unconditional love, which causes to him just as we are. So maybe the second interpretation is more relevant for you. Maybe he's gently calling you. Maybe he's whispering you to today. Do you truly know how much you're worth to me? Do you know how much I love you? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.